uh, word by word through the book of Colossians. And we're calling this series uh, The Glories of Christ. The Glories of Christ. And the reason we're calling it The Glories of Christ is found uh, in one of the verses in chapter 1 that we'll be getting to here in a couple weeks. But verse 17, uh, the words will be here on the screen behind me. But here's kind of a launching pad verse of why we're calling this The Glories of Christ. Uh, About Jesus, we see uh, Paul writes and says that Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. I need to be held together. Like My mind is so scattered and my heart is so scattered and my life always feels like it's going to fall apart. Anybody with me? I need him to hold me together. And God is doing that not just for us, but for everything in human history. Verse 18, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the senior pastor around here. He is the leader. He calls the shots. Jesus is the beginning. There was never a time that he wasn't. The firstborn from the dead. Why? Why did he come? Why did he rise again? That in everything. Say that with me, church. That in everything. Jesus might be preeminent. So we believe as Christians that Jesus is supreme over all things. So I'm not going to preach this verse. We'll be here in a few weeks. Um, but that the glories of Christ. So Paul's writing this church at Colossae, and he's saying to them, you're tempted to believe false doctrine. You're tempted to look to other things to fulfill. You're tempted to find your identity in other things. But listen, Jesus is better. He's better than anything else uh, that you can put your faith in, anything that you can put your pursuits in. So don't be pulled away. Don't be drawn away to other things. It is about Jesus, that he is over all things. He's through all and in all. It is all about Jesus. That's why you were made. That's why we are made. And so it, it is a journey that we're on to say, let us see the glories of Christ, the glories of who he is. The word glory just means the weightiness of Jesus. That he's weightier than anything else that we could ascribe worth to in our lives. And so we need to see Jesus. We need to understand what surrendering to the lordship of Jesus means for the everyday stuff of our lives. That's what we're going to walk through um, throughout the next few months together. And so out there at the hub, I'd like to draw your attention to this resource that we created for you. We have printed copies out there. Uh, if you're kind of a, more of a techie type person, we have these online as well. So you can pull up the PDF. Uh, but there's a two sides to this. One side is just because the glories of Christ. Uh, and there's just some overview uh, study helps for you. So if you were part of our church last year, we read through the Bible together chronologically. And so it was kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant every day, right? Just reading chapters and chapters a day. But what we want to say is, okay, there's a value in that to see how the story and all of these pieces fit together. But there's also a value and a need for us as Christians and what it means to pursue Jesus is to just dig deep and to understand the, the, all of the depths of the Bible. And so we can spend four months reading and rereading one of the letters in the Bible and still not even come close to scratching the surface of all of the beauty and the majesty that's in uh, God's Word. And so we want to give you some tools of how to do that. And so you'll see on here about Scripture memorization. And so there's five passages of Scripture throughout the book of Colossians uh, in chapter 1, 2 in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 that we're going to memorize together as a church family. So woo, right? Is that good? We're going to memorize God's Word together because God says to hide 
His word in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. If we want to really abide in Jesus, we need His word uh, to be saturated in us. And so you'll see those scripture references uh, mentioned there. Then there's also um, a section called Engage. And it's using a, a Bible study method called the SOAP method. That's a cute little acronym for us to, remem- to memorize it. So scripture observation, application, and prayer. And so we have some questions that would be helpful for you as you sit down tomorrow morning and you open up to Colossians chapter 1. What are some questions that you can ask as you attempt to study God's Word at a a depth? Okay? So pick this up. And on the back is a reading plan. So many of you guys are already doing a reading plan um, this year. You're already going to jump in. I invite you to join us in this. Um, And all of our life groups are going to be having an emphasis on this and going through it in depth. Uh, but you'll see each week, what we're going to do is we're going to read through the book of Colossians every week. So on Monday, we're reading chapter 1. On Tuesday, we're reading chapter 2. On Wednesday, we're reading chapter 3. On Thursday, we're reading chapter 4. And then on Friday, there's a cross-reference uh, that kind of goes in depth of the sermon for the next week. So you'll read a cross-reference on Friday. And then on Saturday, uh, the scripture text that I'll be preaching or one of our teaching team will be preaching from that next Sunday. We're going to read and study that portion of scripture on Saturday, and then Sunday is a catch-up day because we may need those, right? Um, and then also just some space on a Sunday morning, maybe as you're getting ready to come over here with your family, uh, just to work on the memory verse uh, for that week. And we've given you which memory verse to work on uh, for that week, all right? You say, well, that's a lot. And so we want to be intentional to say, we want to help us to go deep in God's Word and to do so together as a faith family. So pick one of these up, download it online, uh, and also on the website. So if you go to tcbchurch.org slash Colossians, uh, you'll see this on here. You'll see a lot of our sermon notes we'll put on there. Uh, but then also it's just even more in-depth resources. So if this card isn't enough, you want to go even deeper than these questions. Uh, we're writing resources, there's a few on there right now, and we'll add to those as the week's progress so if you really want to be serious about studying god's word we want to come alongside and resource uh, the best way uh, that we can and so hopefully but lord willing by the end of june we'll have read through the book of colossians uh, multiple 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 times we'll have memorized five key passages in colossians uh, and then we've understood more of how to go in depth and study god's word uh, together so this morning we want to focus on the first verse of chapter one okay uh, we're going to let this be a launching pad to jump into chapter 9 of verse, of, of verse Acts. Wow. Of the book of Acts uh, to look at the life of Paul. So let's read together uh, Colossians 1 verse 1. The words will be on the screen behind me and we'll be in Acts in just a second. Colossians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. All right. That's as far as we're going to get in Colossians today. And so next week, we're going to look at this church of Colossae. How did this church start? What were some of the things happening in history around this church? But today, we're just going to be looking at the author of who is this man and how did God work in his life to get him to this place? And so who is the author of the book? Well, we would be tempted to just say, well, Paul, right? Because he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's introducing himself to this church that he's writing to. And that's true. But I think there's even a little bit of a deeper understanding of who authored this book as we look at this word apostle. Apostle. So yes, in part, Paul is the author of this letter that we're going to be studying over the next four months. Uh, But maybe even more so true is the author of this book is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. As Christians, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you're kind of just peeking in on what we believe as Christians, that we believe that this Bible that we hold in our hands uh, is the very word of God. 
Not just the ideas of God, but it is the very word of God. God breathed. He spoke. He wrote a book. And this is the word of God. And so men wrote down, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, everything the Spirit was prompting them. And we have um, the authoritative word of God without error. Amen, church? This is the word of God. And so that's what that word apostle means. An apostle is one who is sent by God, but who would speak on behalf of God with the very authority of God. So we believe there's no apostles today, uh, no, the big A apostles, because they were ones that had seen the resurrected Christ, and they were going out on a mission, and the apostles were ones who were used to pin down the letters of the New Testament with the authority of the Word of God. And so Paul is saying, I am an apostle. This is not my opinion. This is not just a bunch of things that I want to try to say to you as a church, as a pastor. This is from the very mouth of God. It's not one man's opinion, but the one true God's revelation from the mouth of God. So the author is first and foremost the Holy Spirit. But he uses Paul and his personality and the situations of that day to write to this church. And so you see Paul's personality come out, but he wants to tell us something about this whole apostleship that he has. He's one that's been called by God to speak on behalf of God for the purposes of God. But he says that this, him being an apostle, is what? By the will of God. So this is not something that he just woke up one day and said, you know what, I want to live my life to see the church expand. Like That's not something that Paul just did. This is by the will uh, of God. He says, all of this is happening. I'm going to speak to you on behalf of God. I just want you to know what happened in my life. Like I encountered the resurrected Christ. And he had a purpose for me. I wasn't looking for God. He came looking for me. I wasn't pursuing this purpose. He had a purpose for my life. And I just want you to know, I'm going to write these things to you. And it has bearing on your life. But it is from his will, not mine. This is the purposes of God unfolding. That Paul's life was set apart for this ministry. And so what we want to look at today is how and why. So he says, I'm an apostle. I'm speaking on behalf of God. And hey, this is not anything that I've done. This is all the will of God. All the will of God. So here's the big idea of today's text that we're going to be uh, sorting through in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9 uh, this morning. You ready? Jesus changes lives. I think it's, if Paul could be here today, he would look at us and say, I want you to know that when you encounter Jesus, he changes you. He's a God who changes lives. And he changes lives for the glory of his name and for the big purpose of what he's doing in the world. So here's what I'm praying. As we walk through this descriptive account of what happened in this guy named Paul, I want us to see a few things about how God pursues all of us and how God wants to work in our city, how God wants to work among all nations. So here's what I'm praying. I'm praying three things. Uh, as we start the series with this idea of Jesus changes lives, here's what I'm praying for us. For those of us in this room who do not know Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. We really are. I know you're here because you're asking questions. Maybe a friend just kept bugging you to come to church with them, and you came. And we're just so glad uh, that you're here. We want you to have a space to ask your questions and to see if the claims of Christ are true. And I'm praying today as we talk about the grace of God that you see that his grace really is for you if you'll but turn from yourself and put faith in Jesus. So I'm praying today if you don't know Christ, uh, just all cards on the table, that you would see him today, that you would meet him today. You'd be changed by him today. But for those of us who do know Jesus, you say, I have turned from my sin. I have put faith in Christ's work for me. Listen, I'm praying that we would be in awe of grace. 
We just sang that song, and it's really easy for us to sing the lyrics. Um, this grace is a mystery. That your grace would come to me, and it's amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. And I think they're so familiar, and we kind of know that we should have that posture a little bit, but I don't think that, our, that we're in awe of the grace of God like we need to be. That we're just flattened by what he would do for us, what he's done for us in the past, and that this grace is the same grace that we're still standing in today, that we did not do anything to earn this gospel, this salvation that we have. So I'm praying that we would be awestruck again by grace. Uh, But then I'm also praying that we would get a burden for the people in our lives, for the people in our city that does not know Jesus. They have yet to experience this grace. And that maybe we've given up on the power of the gospel to change lives. That we would have a renewed burden and renewed compassion and renewed um, commitment to say we are going to live in such a way for the people who do not know this grace to experience this grace. Not because we're better than them. Not because that we're going to go out and just be all these weird street preacher kind of people that we're so afraid of being. Not in that way, but to say, we've seen Jesus as incomparably glorious. He's everything. And to turn away from him, to deny him, is just incomprehensibly absurd. He's everything. See him. And to walk away from him just doesn't make sense. Why would you not want this Jesus? And we should be just brokenhearted for the people who do not know uh, Jesus in this way. And so I pray even leading up to Easter, again, we're not about inviting more people into this room to where I can share the gospel with them. You can take the gospel to them. But there are people in our lives that are more um, open to talk about the claims of Jesus. And I mean, Easter is about the resurrection. So I'm praying for boldness for us as a church family to just enter into those conversations well and just answer people's questions and to think thoughtfully. So not just You need to believe because the Bible says so, or you need to come to church with me. But to actually say, do you know why we celebrate Easter as Christians? We believe that Jesus is alive. And that we would have that kind of compassion moving into the season of Easter. And that you would invite your friends to come, to be a part of what God's doing here at this church. But that's not the goal, is to get them in here. The goal is to get them in Christ. And you don't need me in here preaching the gospel to your lost friends. We, you can go with the gospel. So I'm praying that today sparks something in us again to go out from this place in humility and love the people in our lives who don't think like us and to have honest conversations. I'm praying he sparks some of that in us as we see what God wants to do. He longs to save. He longs to redeem. He longs to change us. And if we've been changed, we should be compelled to go. So we have... Uh, four statements about God's grace as we look into these verses, okay? So we'll go quick because we're going to observe the Lord's Supper uh, together. But four things about God's grace that I think we see through the life of Paul before he was Paul. He was called Saul. So we're going to read about Saul, but just know that this is the same guy that we read about just now in Colossians. It's writing to this church. So Acts chapter 7, verse 58. The first thing we see uh, that we're going to see through these uh, lengthy passages we're about to read is that God's grace convicts. God's grace convicts. So let's read. The words will be on the screen if you're not there yet. Acts 7, verse 58. Then they cast him, this is Stephen, a leader in the early church, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments. Here's where we uh, come to know our, our guy, Paul, turns, or Saul, formerly, at the feet of a young man 
named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, and Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So the scene we're looking into is kind of like a documentary of the early church. Jesus has just died for our sins, rose again, ascended to heaven. Holy Spirit has come, filled the church, and now Stephen is the first martyr in the church. There's people wanting to silence the name of Christ. And what Stephen's doing, get this, as he's being murdered for his faith, cries out a very, very close call of what our Savior cried out on the cross. Remember, when Jesus was being crucified, what did he say? Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. Now you see Stephen, the first one that's being killed for faith in that Jesus, is saying the same things that was just on the lips of his Savior just a few days uh, before. You think about this. As Saul's laying here as a religious leader with the, the man of this martyr's coat laying at his feet, watching him killed and hearing him say the very words of Jesus a few days before as he was crucified, had to have an effect on him. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And we understand a little bit more about this scene. And Saul approved of his, or Stephen's, execution. Responsible. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Skip over to verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9. We see again, God's at work, but then the scriptures say, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, the way of the gospel, men or women, it doesn't matter, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So I want us to see two snapshots of who Paul is, or who Saul is before God changed his name to Paul. First, is he's a persecutor of the church. So this is very timely in our day when brothers and sisters all around the world right now are being persecuted by the hands of wicked men. So I want you to think about all of the images of our greatest enemies right now, of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, all these people that are murdering Christians today. So Saul is, in the name of zealousness of religion, putting Christians to death. So all of the visceral reactions we have to our enemies around the world like, this is this guy. He's a terrorist. He's murdering Christians. To silence the name of Jesus to go forth. He's not just indifferent to Jesus. Make no mistake. Like he's not just kind of, I don't believe in all of that. I don't believe Jesus really was God. I don't believe he really did rise from the dead. No, no. He's not just indifferent. He is a bitter opponent to Jesus and the gospel advancing. And he's going to do whatever it takes to see it stopped. I'm not going to let the name of Christ spread because he's a good Jew. He's a good religious person. So that brings us to the other point about Paul. Not only is he a persecutor of the church, but the same guy is a leader in the religious sect of that day. One of the most religious people that ever was. He's the best of the best. He's the varsity level Christians. And so we got to ask ourselves this question of like, 
how in the world could somebody that was so religious be so just antagonistic to the things of God? This murderous, violent person. He was a Pharisee. The same group of people that put Jesus to death. So he may have even been involved in that decision. This is um, the author of this book that we're going to be reading uh, throughout the week. But I want uh, Paul to tell his story to all of us by looking at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Because uh, Paul kind of tells his story a little bit and says, I want you to see the balance of I was really, really religious. I had it all together. But I also, out of that religion, was very violent, very outwardly rebellious. So Paul writes about himself and says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, Paul. All right, we see you, dude. All right, verse 5. Why does he have confidence in the flesh? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So he gives his pedigree. These are all just kind of high standings. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so those things don't mean a lot to us today. We don't have time to unpack everything that he's saying. But it's like, I went to the best of seminaries. <laughs> My podcast is downloaded more than anybody's, right? I mean, he's given his, his rep sheet to say, all the people that you look up to as a religious leader in this day, like, that's me. Ain't nobody out doing me because I, I had it going on. And out of that status of religion as, as a Judaizer, as a Pharisee, like, I killed Christians. And it was out of zeal. It was out of a place of understanding. Because here's what... Paul would say about himself. He probably knew the scriptures more than anybody. I mean, to be a Pharisee, you had books of the Bible, of the Old Testament memorized. Written on your foreheads and on your clothes. I mean, they just knew the word. He knew the scripture better than anyone. But listen, he had missed Jesus. He missed him. And so, in a culture and in a world where many of us in this room have grown up hearing the truths of the Bible and don't understand a lot of facts about the Bible, there's a danger and a warning to say head knowledge does not equate heart transformation. That you can know everything about the Bible and miss the point of the Bible, which the Bible is all about Jesus. He's everywhere. It all points to him, and he had missed it. He was blind. He was blind to who Christ was. And so, real quick, I want us just to unpack this for just a second. There is um, a danger of blindness in us. So, for the people who don't know Christ, they're blind. And for those of us who know Christ, there's a, there's a temptation to be blind to these two things. There's such thing as an irreligious blindness, which I think we see in Paul and formerly Saul. He just was thinking our way is better than God's way. Let me just say, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but sin is deceptive. When you start out in just a life of rebellion, it says, this is what's best. There's a deceptiveness that this is the way I need to go. And it starts out okay. Maybe some of us are here to say, Derek, all the church is always telling me to not go that way. And I'm having the time of my life right now. You know, and that was me a lot of times. Growing up in the church, I always heard sin's bad. You're not going to enjoy it. And I always go, I mean, like, I'm kind of enjoying the sin right now. I mean, like, it's fun. I mean, I mean, let's be real. That's where people are. Say, I've not really come to the end of seeing how all this goes together. But listen, the end result of that trajectory of life is that it'll leave you empty. It'll leave you broken. It'll leave you alone. It'll leave you with no hope. And so even though there's pleasures of, in sin for a season, the end is death because you are walking away for the person 
for whom your soul was made for. The only way, the only result of that is going to be death. And we can be blind to that. Just not see where that's going to go. Not see the folly of our outward rebellion against God. And I'm asking for God to open up our eyes um, to that. But then there's also, I think, especially for those of us in this room, there's a danger of religious blindness. Not just blind, because that's easy for some of us in the church to say. Like, oh yeah, all those people, they're just being rebellious and running away from God. It's easy to see the folly of that. But there's even a folly and a blindness and a deceptiveness to religion. Because religious blindness is thinking that our way can earn God's approval. And that's kind of the trajectory of Paul's life. Um, Religious blindness leads to comparison. We begin to compare ourselves to one another rather than comparing ourselves to the holiness of God. And what that results in when we start to compare ourselves to one another instead of comparing ourselves to God is it results in either pride, because we think we're better than everybody else, or it results in despair, because you know you really, deep down, you know you can't live up to the standard. And it's blind. And so that pride and despair will lead to jealousy. You begin to just get jealous over people that is living life in different ways than you. It creates an us versus them. Of all these people over here, we're better than them because we have the rep sheet of all the goodness that we have. And, and then sometimes it'll actually lead to division. And for Paul's sake, it led to violence. Is that religion, some of my atheist friends all the time, one of their biggest concerns, biggest pushbacks against Christianity is look at what religion has caused around the world. All of the injustice and all of the division and all of the hate and all of the war and all the, and to which I will say, I know. And I'm sorry. Like that is the church in a lot of ways. That is what religion will cause. Because when you think that you've done all of this stuff to earn God's favor, you'll begin to demonize and hate the other. And you'll go to whatever length to keep your safe little bubble. And religion, defined this way, is deadly. It causes a lot of division, a lot of hurt. And so many of us can be religious. Go through all the motions. You've prayed the prayer. You've been dunked underwater. You've got all of these ideas of what it means to follow Jesus. And you're a good person. When you look to your neighbor, you say, I'm a good person. Look at that. I'm living better than that guy. But when we see ourselves under the presence of God, under the holiness of God, we all fall short of the glory, and we all stand condemned. And so religion lost us. So we live in a culture today where almost anybody you talk to out here would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And that's increasingly becoming less that. But there's a, there's a cultural Christianity in this area that is just as deceptive and just as sinful as if, think of the most pluralistic, liberal city of our world that's just going just full out debauchery there's a lie that we know jesus when there's been no transformation we're religious but we're lost a lot of people in the church that i think are just going through the motions like paul would say i know the one true god but he had missed jesus and so there's some people in this room that i pray that the holy spirit would convict and for those of us that do know christ listen this is where our culture lives when we say be on mission like People are blind. They can't see the beauty of Jesus. Some of them are just running from God by breaking all the rules. And some of them are running from God, listen, by keeping all the rules. But they're lost. And all of us are the same. So, listen, our backgrounds around this room are all over the place. Some of us grew up in the church. Some of us have never even been in church. Somewhere in between. Some of us, you say, I've got sin that I'm really, really ashamed of. And some of us, our sin is kind of that 
acceptable sin in the church, you know? Like, it's not that outward. You don't have the big testimony of how your life was before Jesus. But listen, we were all equally in need of grace. And we were all damned to a Christless eternity under the wrath of God. Because we had rebelled against God. All of us. That's where all of us were. We're all separated from God, all spiritually dead, no hope. No matter what it looks like on the outside, the inside heart is the same. And it's looking at God and saying, I don't want you. That's where all of us were. And that's where Paul was. He had that balance. He's lived both lives. And God's grace comes in and convicts and shows the blindness and shows the deceptive nature of the heart. But then God's grace pursues. God's grace pursues. It doesn't just convict us. So what's the point of the conviction? We sit and we see our sin for what it is, but there's a purpose in the uncomfortable. There's a purpose in God bringing us here today. There's a purpose in us being sent out to the people who are still in their blindness. And it's because God is pursuing and he's saving sinners because that's what God does. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Now as he, Saul, went on his way, notice that's in contrast with the people of the way. He went on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So again, Jesus is not on Jesus. Saul is not on his way to church. He's on his way to kill the church. And God's grace initiates. God's grace intervenes in this man's life. As he's pursuing his own way, God steps in, in his grace. Just a side note, um, part of our sin is we refuse to identify with Jesus and his people. So for Saul, it was killing Christians. But for us today, it's not, I mean, too many people are going to pick up stones and kill Christians. But you know, our generation's problem is we're very skeptical of the church. We don't want to identify with Jesus. We don't want to identify with his people we're embarrassed to be identified with this church. Listen, there's a lot of things in the church that we should be embarrassed over. <laughs> We've done some things wrong. But Jesus says, you don't have that option, like, because my bride. And so you cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. Because he says, Jesus identifies with his people. He says, you are persecuting me, Jesus says. You're persecuting me. He hadn't persecuted Jesus. He had persecuted Jesus' followers. But Jesus says, the union that I have as the Son of God with my people is so deep and is so interconnected that to hate them is to hate me. So you can't be okay with Jesus and not be okay with his bride. Like it is so interconnected. So interconnected. So I'm praying that God would change our perspective about the local church and all the things that we should be against in the church let's have redemptive hearts about it let's make it better but we can't give up on this we need one another because to be away from the bride of christ is to say something about christ himself jesus took really uh, big issues with the way this man was treating his church but in acts chapter 26 and this is where we'll kind of camp out and end okay acts chapter 26 verse 14 Paul retells this story. So God's grace is convicting Paul. God's grace is pursuing Paul, and Paul's not looking for it. But he retells the story, and he adds a phrase um, here. So let's read it together. When, he, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is the phrase that he adds. It is hard 
for you to kick against the goads. And that's not goat, okay? I didn't misspell that. It's actually goad. All right, well, so what is a goad? This is really important to understand what he's saying. It's hard for you to kick against the goad. The goad in that day was a sharp, pointy stick they would use to prod uh, animals along or maybe to break the will of wild animals. And so obviously those oxen or whatever would really hate to be poked, and so they would kick against the little prick that they would have, defiant against this spurring. And so what God is saying to Saul is, listen, it's hard for you to kick against these goats because he defines kind of his pursuit of him like just a poking. That God is convicting, he's pursuing, he's wooing Saul's heart, and he's going to break Saul down to the point where he can't kick anymore. He's going to get him to the place that he sees the folly of his ways and the beauty of Jesus. And it's a picture of what God will do in us. And so for those of us who know Christ, remember that moment when the Holy Spirit was just convicting. The Holy Spirit was pursuing. When you got to the end of yourself and realized that your way isn't working, do you remember that process? Do you remember how uncomfortable it was, how miserable it is to be under the conviction of God? And so what are some of these goads in Paul's life? We don't really know, but maybe it was Stephen. As he was watching Stephen be crucified or killed and stoned, the, the love of Stephen, the, the, the way he responds at that moment, maybe that was just so convicting to Saul. He maybe laid in the bed that night and was like, how can that man love and ask for forgiveness of the people that, of me who was murdering him? Like Maybe this Jesus thing has some substance to it. And so, listen, God will use those pricks in our lives. And for some of you, you need to hear this. This is where you are. God brought you here to say this to you. This is where the people in our city are. God will use suffering to get us to the end of ourselves. He will frustrate our plans to get us to the end of ourselves. You know that nagging emptiness that we feel in our heart? That is the sovereign grace of God getting us to the end of ourselves. Some of you say, I keep being drawn to the things of God. I don't know why. I keep coming back here. I don't know why. I keep asking questions and I don't know why. It's because God is drawing me. Some of you just are curious. That is God drawing you many of you you have unanswered questions and they just nag at you like where do we come from if the bible isn't true like how does all this exist what's wrong with us and why does nothing that this culture says to do to fix it none of it works why is that what's wrong with the world why in the world is christianity so global every culture is following the same jesus and it's not just about People in the Bible Belt of the South. Like this thing is bigger than this. How did this happen if it's not true? When we die, what happens? All of these questions are just nagging at us. How do you explain beauty? How do you explain love? How do you explain a common morality if God is not true? And many of you are asking those questions because it's because God is prodding you to show you that this is true. And there's people all around that we love and we work with that God is working in their lives in this way. He's prodding them and he's showing them that they're they're, their sin and showing them of the folly of their ways. And he's beginning to open up their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. Will we go? Will we tell them? Will we open up our eyes to what God is doing around us? And so for some of you, this is the only thing you'll remember today and it's okay because it's a good thing to remember. All of that poking and prodding like, God what are you doing in my life why is this happening listen God is not paying you back he's bringing you back 
He's wooing your heart because God wants to be with you. Stop running. Stop kicking against it. Surrender. Lastly, God's grace will humble us. It'll humble us. We won't um, read it for the sake of time, but verses 6 through 9, basically, Paul or Saul gets up, and he can't see anything. And for three days, he's blind until God sends him to another man, and he gets his eyes open. And God had to get him to a place of humility before he could see and be used of God in the world. So listen, the closing of his physical eyes, hang with me, we're almost finished. The closing of his physical eyes was the beginning of the opening of his spiritual eyes. That God had to get him just completely bankrupt to get him to a place where he could see the gracious gift of God. It was grace for God to blind Saul. Because in his being blind, he could then see. So then we've got to ask the question, how will we respond to our eyes being opened. We can try to cover up the shame and the nakedness with religion and just avoid it and go running from it, or we can see that the gospel covers us. And God offers us a righteousness that's apart from anything that we can do because Jesus took your place and he rose again and he offers us life. We don't have to be fakes anymore. We don't have to cover up anymore. That God has brought us to this place in this moment to say, my grace is bigger than your sin. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And when we experience that grace, three things will happen. Amazement will replace entitlement. Paul would write later on to to the young pastor Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. He didn't say past tense, I was the greatest sinner. No, I am the greatest sinner today because I see the grace of God and I did not do anything to deserve it. I was on my own way and God just sovereignly and graciously stopped me and intervened and did something in me. I have no entitlement. I didn't earn this. God doesn't owe me anything. I'm just amazed at the grace of God. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. The ultimate test of our spirituality is our level of amazement at the grace of God. You want to know how spiritual you are? It's not about what you do. It's how amazed are you at the grace of the Lord. But it will also turn us from transparency and replace hypocrisy with transparency. 2 Corinthians 11 says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How many of us can say that? Because it's not about me. I don't have to cover up anymore. I don't have to come into church and put on a mask and act like I'm something that I'm not. Like grace says, I don't deserve it. I'm not the Savior. Look to the one who could do this for me and I'll, I'll gladly show you all my scars. I'll gladly show you my weaknesses. I'll gladly tell you who I used to be because that's not who I am today and I want God to get glory through using someone so messed up like me. Glory in what shows your weakness. If we're going to boast, let's not boast in what we've done. Boast in the grace of God. And then lastly, selflessness replaces arrogance. We don't have time, but I'm going to read it anyway. Because this is such a convicting verse for me. Paul is writing to this church at Rome. And he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Listen, the, the dude that was on his way to murder Christians, to stop the name of Jesus advancing. He meets Jesus and grace changes him. And it's the same guy who later will say, if I could, I'd go to hell. That more people would come to know this Jesus. Like what a turnaround. What would cause that kind of compassion, that kind of life change in someone's heart? Is he experienced grace. That the church's greatest enemy is now the church's greatest missionary. Only Jesus can do that. Only grace can do that. Only the gospel can do that. Only him. And he says, I have a purpose for you. I'm going to redeem this. And he says, you're my chosen instrument to go and carry my name and to suffer for my name because God's grace redeems. Listen, he wants to use your past as a platform for praise. All of, the, all of the mess, all of our sin, all of our weaknesses, and all the story of how he's wooing us to himself and how he's shown grace to us, listen, is a platform to show the beauty of God. To show the beauty of God. And I love what Jim read us earlier. He's writing the church at Galatia, and this church that had witnessed him persecute. You think about that. Like, one of the terrorists turns Christian, and I say he's going to come preach here next week. I mean, think about how uncomfortable you would be about that. And so the church at Galatia would be that way. You see this same way with Ananias in chapter 9 that we didn't have time to read today. Like He's going, I don't know about going to this guy because he kills Christians. And that church at Galatia had seen that, had that uncomfortable nature, and they'd seen the life change in Paul. And he says, the faith that he once tried to destroy, he's now is preaching and heralding. And I love that verse 24. Let's read it together. And they glorified God because of me. I'm praying that we would see our stories, our testimonies as that, as a way for people to look at, look who I am today. This is not who I used to be. This is the only thing that would make sense of this is the grace of God. And people could look at the life change and say, they glorify not us, but they glorify God because of me, because of my change, because of the way that we lead and love. Jesus changes lives. So let's bow uh, together in response. We're going to remember this. We're going to unpack this together um, as we prepare our hearts to remember the Lord's Supper together. So I just have some questions. Everybody, uh, head bow, eyes closed. Nothing magical. I just don't want any distractions to keep us from really asking these questions of our heart. So listen, to those of us who know Christ here today, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a picture of, a tangible expression to remember the body and the blood of Christ, the sacrifice that he's made for us. And we're about to take this, but as a way to prepare our hearts and to respond to the truths of God's word, have you lost amazement at the grace of God? Has it grown stale um, to you today? I'm asking as we remember the Lord's Supper that we would celebrate his grace For some of you, I'm asking, what from your past right now is keeping you from believing in God's love for you? Or is holding you back from His purpose for you? Because what we're understanding from 
the life of Saul turned Paul is that God can take everything, even our mistakes, even our sin, all of our past, and he can use it for the advancement of his name to show that the power doesn't rest in us, the power rests in him. So I invite us all just to lay that down at the feet of Jesus, to celebrate that, listen, our past sins are forgiven. You're clean if you are in Jesus. You're forgiven. You're chosen. You are loved. Your present sins that you're struggling with right now, listen, you have been freed from them. The power of sin does not have to control you anymore. And then one day we look ahead to the day that he'll come again. And we don't have to worry about this anymore. We can be with Jesus. Our faith will end in sight. And so we take the Lord's Supper remembering that he's going to come again and fix this once and for all. But for those in this room, listen, that do not know Jesus, you're here and I'm talking about these things and you say, I don't know that I've experienced the grace of God convicting me and pursuing me and humbling me and redeeming me. I don't know that I've ever actually had that happen to me. I maybe just played the church game or maybe I've been in outward rebellion refusing to receive the grace of God. So let me just ask you some questions. Do you see how God has been pursuing you? He's been pursuing you. Do you see how you've been blind to the beauty of Jesus and the folly of your sin? Do you believe that Jesus can and that he will save you if you'll turn from your sin and put faith in what he's accomplished? Are you willing to do that today? And you can. So we're going to ask that if you do not know Jesus, that you do not take the Lord's Supper because it's reserved for those of us who are in Christ. But we offer you more than a symbol of the gospel. We offer you Jesus. And so during this time, if you want to just contemplate the gospel like is this true and is this something like what does this mean for me i have to respond so either you say no or you say yes finally and we'd love to talk to you at the end of the service about what that could mean for you but i'd like you to take this time as we come to the table just to think about the claims of jesus but for the rest of us now we're gonna uh just a few moments come up and grab the bread and the juice and come back to our seats and we're gonna wait and we'll all take the lord's supper together Uh, as a faith family. So in a posture of prayer, church, uh, there's two tables in the back, there's two tables in the front. Let's come now, uh, continue to search our hearts and grab the elements and come back to your seat and we'll take it together in just a second.